Hey, this is Doug Jones from Fantastic Four Rise of the Silver Surfer, Hellboy 1 and 2, Hocus Pocus, Pan's Labyrinth, and currently on Falling Skies. But today, you are listening to Genretainment. Hi everyone, welcome to a special episode of Genretainment. A Halloween special here on SciFiPulseRadio.com. We're your hosts, Marks. And Julie. And Genretainment is where we talk about what's happening in the world of film, TV, and web series. We give you interviews with writers, directors, producers, and actors in both independent and not-so-independent creations. And for today's Halloween episode, we are talking about the horror genre in movies, TV, and books. We have three special guests. First up, we have joining us award-winning writer Victor Miller, best known for writing the horror film Friday the 13th. And also joining us is author and web series creator John Kenneth Muir, who has a number of books on movies and TV, including horror movies of the 1980s, horror movies of the 1970s, and more. And he created the horror sci-fi web series The House Between. And our last guest to join us is author and game designer Monica Valentinelli, who's written a number of stories, including The Dig for the Lovecraft e-zine, and role-playing games like All Flesh Must Be Eaten and the Firefly RPG. <laughs> I love Firefly. We even have a special music treat this episode. Before and after our chat with the guests, you will hear a Lovecraft-inspired unmixed track called Necrotia, hopefully I'm pronouncing that right, from the untitled upcoming album from the band Blood Tribe. So yes, we do have a fun-filled episode of horror for all of you. And while we're talking about music, we should point out that the music you just heard at the beginning of the show was a snippet from the theme song for our web series, Reality on Demand. It is a song composed and performed by our friend Tishon Hardy. And you can find our web series at realityondemandseries.com. And now, no more waiting. Let's get to our three guests. that time of the year halloween is is near or already here depending on when you listen to this episode and besides costume parties and haunted houses our favorite pastime during this holiday is typically horror movies and books <laughs> so today we have three special guests to join us to talk about the horror genre and what makes a good horror story and some of our favorites well first up we, we have, have uh john kenneth muir he's written uh, like a gazillion books on television and movies uh, including horror movies of the 1980s and horror movies in the 1990s i think that alone makes him qualify <laughs> yeah also we have uh, victor brooke miller he's the writer of the original friday the 13th mm-hmm. aren't you an emmy award winner too Yes, three Emmys, four Writers Guild Awards. Right. All for, wow. All for daytime television. We are in the presence of greatness. Yes. Uh, <laughs> all writers are great. <laughs> <laughs> Which leads us to our next guest, Monica Valentinelli. Who's an author and game design author. And uh, we actually just talked to her recently. Uh, actually, yeah. all we should say this. All three guests on today have been previous guests. So you can go back. Yes, you can go back in archives and see featured episodes of each one of them. Yeah, we spoke with Monica recently with Margaret Weiss. Mm-hmm. Yes. The others, oh gosh, how long ago, how long ago was it that we interviewed you guys? It's been a while. I have no clue. <laughs> I don't either. <laughs> I'm, I'm 73 years old. I'm allowed to forget everything. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what my excuse is. <laughs> I think it was July of 2012 when I was last on. Ooh, I good. He there. looked yeah. it up. He's on the computer. <laughs> I, I did, I did. I did look it up, I actually. <laughs> Sorry. 
Well, all right. Well, let's just, uh, it is a casual discussion and we'll just pop up some topics and go from there. Um, it's a casual discussion. We will take <clears throat> notes, make grades and no, just kidding. <laughs> so, uh, well, let's off, start off with the obvious one. I think, you know, why do each of you think that people like the horror genre in the first place? So Victor, what do you think? Well, I was going to have you start with uh, John Muir because uh, he's uh, he studied this, uh, this much uh, closer than I have. But my, my initial knee-jerk reaction is simply that uh, horror is a way of dealing with the feelings that um, we can't deal with in real life. I mean, it's, uh, it is very scary out there. I find that uh, everything that's going on politically and in the world is absolutely real and horrifying. Uh, and I would much rather watch people suck blood out of each other's neck and than any of the uh, the news that I watch on my television. So, and I I just think you know it's a way of exercising all of our fears and in a controllable way, and that's that's kind of it in a nutshell for me. But I I'd much rather hear somebody who's really studied it. Well, Mr. Miller, I, that that was a brilliant answer. I don't think anything I could say would be more on point than that. It, it's clear why you have won multiple awards because you are spot on with with that answer. I mean. You know what? What I see in terms of of horror is very much that that uh, people attempt to cope with and describe in art the things that they cannot face or handle in life. I mean, what makes a movie scary to audiences is basically how it reflects life and and how it reflects the contemporary audience. In other words, you know what what scared an audience. Uh, in terms of um, horror films in, in the 1930s, like the original King Kong or Dracula, doesn't necessarily appeal to us. Doesn't, it, it, those are still good films, but they don't scare us today in the same way because our set of dreads today is very different than that set of dreads. We can still appreciate those great films from a technical standpoint and such, but they don't scare us to the same degree because uh, the culture has moved on to a different set of fears. And so horror movies are always... Um, an exploration of the most contemporary or, or recent fears facing a culture. And I, I think when you look at, well, why do people love horror movies? It, it's the idea of going into the theater and having this catharsis to be, to, to face these things that they, they can't face in life, and they may not even be able to enunciate in life. One of the reasons I'm I'm so in love with the horror genre is that it, it, it really faces and talks about the issues that many mainstream movies cannot talk about. Of course, it may talk about it with vampires or slashers or whatever, but they're really talking about things that are important culturally. And I've spoken for far too long. Your answer was much more concise, but <laughs> but but absolutely beautiful. It was great. Thank you. And Monica, what's your opinion? You know, as others have said, people have always needed something to fear. But what I find really fascinating is just how different cultures approach horror, what they fear in their own specific unique culture. And you really can't see that on a surface level unless you look for, through the creative arts that they produce. Uh, a really good example of this is the difference between Japanese horror films and American horror films. Um, ghosts in particular are really fascinating because there are such religious overtones with ghosts, especially in the States. There's always some sort of messaging about how these ghosts can be redeemed um, and how they're stuck and how they're going to move on to a different place. That's not necessarily the case when you start looking at some of the, the films coming out of China or Japan or even Korea. 
and and it's really fascinating to me because it reflects not only the the culture the day-to-day -day life but it also goes a little bit deeper than that to kind of tie back things into the occult or even religious beliefs um and that for me is partly what fascinates it because when you when you really figure out what somebody believes and what they're afraid of you also can find out what brings them hope and in a lot of horror movies and the ones that I tend to really like that um, tend to be more atmospheric, they always have some form of hope that the character kind of hangs their hat on and you want to see them be the hero and overcome this awful, unspeakable thing to be able to um, live to see another day. And I think the contrast between the two is really fascinating to me, which you know, on, on a sidebar, which is also why it, it's extremely interesting to me why H.P. Lovecraft has had such a resurgence, because he's the complete opposite of that. Uh, there is no hope in Lovecraft. In fact, his messaging is, well, you know what? There's these awful, evil, terrible things, and we're doomed. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> Woohoo! Woohoo! Um, so, so I think it's, for me, I think it's not only experiencing the horror, but but the humanity of it and how people deal with it. Yeah, I think that, you know, people have always had stories that scared them, and sometimes it was to explain things that they didn't understand throughout human history. Yeah, um, fairy tales are good for that. Yeah, and and different, I, I know there's different vampire lore. I mean, some of them would suck blood out of someone's thumb. Some would dance with their victims until they were too tired to fight back. And, I mean, it was just, it was just an incredible... Uh, a lot of lore that was from all over the world with the same thing. And I think it's because um, people think of blood, you know, we know it's necessary for life. And that was one way people dealt with uh, illnesses and diseases and deaths that they didn't understand because they just didn't have the science to understand it. And um, I think that's probably why we tend to get a little bit more sappy with them now because we to get more <laughs> well, I, to have, I have opinions on that <laughs> oh yeah you know, I, I have a very anti uh, twilight view but um but beyond even just <laughs> vampires I think that um I think that we all just as human beings have a need to be happy and a need to be scared and a need to be sad and we have to have an outlet for our inner violence you know I mean we like we like boxing and we like MMA and, and we go play paintball and it's not really bad because it's just part of we're embracing that part of the human experience and but we're doing it in a controlled manner you know it's better to go play laser tag or paintball or get in a boxing ring than to actually go out and hurt people <laughs> you know? just and, just to clarify a quick point that I made so if people love Twilight I think that's great um, I happen to not think that is horror I feel that that yeah. is a romance because there's a conflict that two characters uh, have with each other one hap you know it happens to be bound up in these supernatural things but they yeah. end up uh, yes. together so so to me that's more of a romance than it is horror yeah from from my own personal perspective though I I do feel that taking these very ancient archetypes which are bound up in a lot of very natural things a childbirth for example has a lot of horror associated with it oh yeah um, and some vampire myths as well and for me what's very, really frightening is when we stop to fear when we stop to fear and you don't fear the monster anymore, that's when they get you. Yeah. Because if you don't have anything natural that you're afraid of and these predators uh, and, you're, uh, and you're basically defanging them, so to speak, um, you're removing core function of what these stories are there to be. And then 
when there's nothing to be afraid of, well, then that's when bad things happen. Yeah. So I do feel that horror has a place, and I feel a very important one, even though it's not the most popular genre it is now, like it was in the 80s. Um, and I'd like to see it come back for that reason, because yeah, I feel having that balance is smart. Yeah, and, and if you've ever been in a movie theater, as a packed movie theater, watching a horror film, and, uh, you know, it, it's very much a community event. People are are cheering and, oh, and no, don't go in there. And, and I mean, you know, it's a very cathartic experience um, that you're not really doing by yourself. It's not an isolated Especially experience. Especially if it's 3D. Yeah. <laughs> we went to see um, My Bloody Valentine 3D. And we, I deliberately said we have to go on like a Friday or Saturday night, kind of a late showing, just because we need that experience if we're going to go see this. And, you know, I mean, people are like, this guy is a real jerk. And when you know his, he's getting... Oh, wasn't it in the midnight showing that for Valentine's yeah, Day? Yeah, it was on Valentine's Day. Mark's asked yeah. what I wanted to do for Valentine's Day. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and you know, I mean, people like the guy, you know, he's like, oh, I'm pregnant. The girl he's screwing around with and everyone starts laughing and they know he's going to bite it. You know, I mean, it was just, it was a very cathartic group experience. It was kind of fun. <laughs> and I'm, to be honest, out of this group, I'm, I'm definitely the horror light person. I'm not as much into horror because I, I have a, I'm a wuss when it comes to gore and blood. So, <laughs> but even I, you know, that was fun. <laughs> Monica has explained something to me that I, I'd never put together, which is why I'm really grateful for this chat. Um, I have always been, I have, have never um, possessed the DNA for paranormal. It just doesn't do a thing for me. And um, then, but she was talking about the religious connection. I said, "Well, no wonder I've been an atheist all my life." <laughs> and, and there's, and believe me, there's nothing after this comes up. So for me to create a ghost would be um, an act of absolute hypocrisy. But I never knew that it was subconscious. I, you know, I, I never sit down and say, "Oh, I don't want any ghosts because I don't believe in them." I just, I, they just don't do a thing for me because I never met one. <laughs> that's awesome you thank learned, you you learn something new every day i know i do i do but the other the other thing i wanted to, uh, to key in on from what you said earlier is that uh what monica was talking about earlier is that in the 60s uh when i was a, quite an active hippie um we did a lot of improvisational theater and workshops and things and one of the things that people kept talking about in uh, that improv brought them was that uh, these are perfectly nice pacifists who said, but in an improv, I can license my inner Nazi. Yeah. Um, which is, you know, you get, to, you get to be that horrible person. And I guess it, it ties into going to a, a film and, and cheering that that boob uh, walks into the buzzsaw and, <laughs> and you're glad to see him go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Mark's thoughts? <clears throat> Oh, you guys all covered it. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> We're done. All yes. right. Thanks, everybody. <laughs> um, so when we were talking about historic movies, uh, since we have a wide variety of ages and experiences here, I was wondering if my fellow guests would talk about movies from their particular time period, the, the first time they saw a horror movie that they felt was very time-sensitive. Um, I can think of a few, but I'd like to hear from you, you know, basically some, some era-driven films and how you think they might be received now. Oh, well, I, as, I'll start because I go back further than anybody else, I think. 
I was born in 1940. In 1946, we lived on a Navy base in Green Coast Springs, Florida, and I could just wander anywhere I wanted. And um, so I went to the, the movies one night. The movie was Seven Keys to Bald Pate. That's B-A-L-D-P-A-T-E. It was a movie made um, from, uh, there, there's been a silent version made of it. Uh, it was a Broadway play. It was a big, scary play. It was sort of like that era's mousetrap, I guess. And um, it's it's a comedy uh, horror film, but not really all that horrible. And it's basically just a lot of people running around in this old hotel and with a lot of creaking and people popping out of doors and stuff like that. I ran screaming from the theater in 1946 <laughs> at this horrible movie. And um, I the only copy of it, I, I think I saw one... Gosh, I mean, the, I don't know, the 60s, I saw some scenes from it, but and I've seen the silent version, um, but I would love to see the movie itself, which was, you know, as benign a horror film as possible, but my that was my introduction to horror, and I, uh, and I ran screaming from it, which when, wow. when, when people ask me, you know, um, you know are, aren't you creepy? Uh, because you wrote Friday the 13th, and I say, no, I'm a wuss. Uh, <laughs> the last thing you want to write your horror movie is somebody who's not afraid of anything. And my yeah. God, if you'd been born in my family, you would have been afraid of everything. And so uh, I slept with the nightlight till I was 12, because, and I looked under my bed, so finally I got to put Mrs. Voorhees underneath Kevin Bacon. Um, but, you know, it's... it's um, it's amazing, but my favorites, Psycho, the original Diabolique, um, Julie Harris's ha The Haunting, um, things like that, those are, those are for me the, the real chair jumpers. Mm -hmm. Great, great choices, great choices. How about you, John? Yeah, you know, I, I was born in, um, in 1969, and I wasn't really watching uh, horror movies until the early 80s, um, but the ones that really got to me uh, were the ones mostly from the 1970s and early 80s, where there was a sort of conjunction of things going on in the horror movie uh, genre at that point. There was um, there was the idea that all, all of these up-and-comers uh, were coming into the horror genre, sort of corkscrewing it with new ideas. You had Brian De Palma making a film like Sisters. Um, you know, you had Toby Hooper in Texas making the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. You had Wes Craven... Uh, making a film like Last House on the Left, and then Hills Have Eyes. You had Friedkin making The Exorcist. All these films in the 70s were sort of a result of um, what a lot of people have called the new freedom that came out of the more independent, uh, less studio-oriented uh, late 60s and early 70s approach to filmmaking. And basically, these films, m many of them were outside of the Hollywood industry, Hollywood mainstream, and they reacted... Um, they they interacted really with the culture. You think about what was happening in the culture at the time. You know, you had the Watergate scandal. You had the the you know ignominious end of the Vietnam War. You had um, Three Mile Island. Uh, you had um, the oil embargo and oil shock of of 1973, and then another oil shock in 1979. So you could just say that's all the energy crisis. But again and again. Um, America's confidence was being shaken. I mean, we even had a president in 1979 give a speech called the Crisis of Confidence speech, where all of these accepted pillars of American society um, were collapsing. Uh, you know, uh, faith in government, uh, 
things like that, uh, faith in America's place in the world, all that stuff was vanishing. And so the, a lot of the horror movies that I named, like Texas Chainsaw, Last House on the Left, were about you know this very uncertain world. Um, and these horror movies were different from the ones of a previous generation because, by and large, they weren't being fronted by somebody like uh, Peter Cushing or Vincent Price or Christopher Lee. Uh, you know, it, wa- it wasn't star-driven. It was almost literally nightmare-driven. Um, you know, and people have contextualized uh, Night of the Living Dead, which was 68, as being about Vietnam, Texas Chainsaw about being the, about the energy crisis, about a country that's out of gas and unemployed, things like that. And, and since I guess, I, I don't know if I just soaked that, soaked that up or whatever, but that's, that's what I, those are the kinds of movies that, that really appealed to me when I got into horror. Um, maybe because, um, you know, I don't know if I'm not imaginative or what, but, you know, I, I find it more of a stretch of an, an imagination to, to go to vampires, you know, and to, um, to werewolves than it is to imagine that there's some freaky cannibal, you know, out in a silver mine in Nevada who's starving to death and, and wants my RV, you know, that, and that, that, so that's the kind of horror movie that I'm drawn to. The, these, these very savage, uh, reality driven horror movies about the fact that we live in a universe of limited supplies and there's going to be a battle for those supplies. You see that again and again in the films of the 70s. So. Okay, let me just say, we're talking about horror films, but the scariest thing I've heard anyone talk about is American society in the 1970s. That's terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really yeah. glad I missed all that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it was a, it, it was a decade um, where a lot of bad things happened. I mean, there were good things in the culture, too. And if you, if you look at what was happening in the first part of the 70s, um, the cult, the movies were uh, really facing those things uh, in, in movies like, you know, uh, science fiction film, but like Soylent Green, for instance, which was about, you know, overpopulation and uh, cannibalism and all these things. And what, what, they were facing what could happen if we don't take care of the environment. By the end of the decade, we'd moved on to Star Wars, and it was like, hey, the world's going to end. Let's just have fun. <laughs> let's, <laughs> let's have swashbuckling. Right, let's just have swashbuckling adventure. So, you know, the 70s is a very schizophrenic decade and that all these terrible things were happening. And the response was sort of, uh, as I said before, it's like column A, column B. Column A is we face it and, and make our nightmares uh, related to what's happening. Uh, and column B is uh, we just sort of wallow in hedonism and sort of nostalgia and, you know, very sort of light, happy mythology. And you can see both of those responses in 70s cinema. I'd like to cast uh, and, officially and, for hedonism. Just saying. <laughs> You're going for hedonism? Hey, hedonism yeah. all the way, babe. <laughs> I don't blame you. I don't blame you. Um, how, about, how about you, Julie? Me? Um, let's see. So I wasn't born until the end of the 70s and wasn't really allowed to watch horror movies. So it took me a while, but the first, so the first one I watched was sort of horror light, but it is, I do like it. And unlike Victor, I actually really am drawn to the things that are of the supernatural variety. Um, So I, the first one I can think of watching was Watcher in the Woods from 1980. Oh yeah. Which was just so good. I'm sorry. I know it's probably (laughs) hokey if I were to go back and watch it now, but you know, to a kid, it was so cool. <laughs> I'm not even sure if I've seen that one. Yeah, it's got Betty Davis. She plays this uh, older lady whose daughter disappeared like a long time ago, and they never knew what happened to her, and some occult stuff had gone on at that time. And these two 
this family moves in with two young girls and they start noticing some stuff going on. It has to do with the lunar eclipse. And so anyway, watch it. It's good. <laughs> we're going to, we're going to watch that. Yeah. And for me, I don't know. I watched a lot of horror movies. When I, was a kid. <laughs> I know my mom, for some reason, loved them. She, and... she wouldn't let him watch anyone kissing on screen, but he could watch Texas oh, Chainsaw yeah. Massacre. I could see people get massacred, but somebody kisses a guy covered my eyes. I, that's, that's a whole nother child. <laughs> I don't even remember what I first watched, but the 80s especially were, were just so ripe and franchise. They're all just a blur to him. <clears throat> it's like asking about somebody's drugs in the 60s. Between, it's just a blur. Obviously, Friday 13th and then, and then, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street and everything else, uh, Halloween. Um, I think one of the first horror movies, though, that, that really kind of like I thought were kind of scary-ish, or at least left me disturbed... Actually, Texas Chainsaw Massacre left me. How could that not disturb somebody? <laughs> the '70s are just disturbing. Those movies, I agree with you, John. But um, yeah. uh, there's something very uh, brutal about them. But I didn't watch that actually until I was in college for some reason. But um, the mouth, the uh, mouth of madness, I believe. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, that yeah. was a movie I watched. That was my introduction in a way to H.P. Lovecraft uh, themed type s- stories. I really liked it because uh, it was disturbing about sanity and reality and. And it didn't really have a happy ending. Not that all horror movies do, but a lot of them tend to have... Somebody usually gets away. At least least the monster kind of gets destroyed, or we hope it did, maybe, sort of. So that was uh, one of my favorites. Oh, this Um, all explains so much about you. In my youth, yes. (laughs) (laughs) And lastly, Monica. Um, So I think I'm the weird one, because the way that I came into horror wasn't through film partially because of the the television that I was allowed to watch as a child. I came into it through books um, with an emphasis on Poe. I was a, a huge Poe fan for the longest time. So some of my first horror movies that um, I watched were were, Hitch, were the Hitchcock films. Hitchcock, sorry. Can't say his name for the life of me. Um, the birds scared the living bejesus out of me. I liked Great it, but movie. it didn't scare me. Oh my gosh! It just scared the living bejesus. I felt sorry for the birds. <laughs> I was like, "Don't hurt the birds!" Screw the birds. <laughs> sorry, Monica, go on. Well, I mean, it's a for me, it's that feeling of helplessness, you know, because my personal philosophy is that there's always an option, there's always a way, there's always a choice that you can make, and in a lot of horror films like Saw and whatnot, they, they deal with that, right? You know, if you have a choice to make and it's between the lesser of two evils, which one are you going to take? Um, the birds is just this, this idea of total and complete hopelessness. There's nothing you can do. And I, I feel for that reason, it's very horrifying. Um, there were quite a few Twilight Zone episodes that also really scared the living bejesus out of me. Mm-hmm. Every time I go on a plane, every time I'm sitting in an awful seat, I have to tell the stewardess about the goblin. Uh, <laughs> and they're like, oh, I never saw that episode. I'm like, go home and watch it. You'll yes. never want to be flying in a rainstorm again. Uh-uh. <laughs> I can't believe uh, someone hasn't seen that. Well, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's people that haven't seen Star Wars, though. So I can't believe you know? that either. Those people don't exist <laughs> in my world. They're communists, I think. <laughs> <laughs> want to talk about scary i mean darth vader was really scary to, to a lot of kids you know especially when he first came out but yeah. um and and yes i was a child around that time so no i'm not that old um but so 
that movie was really scary to me. There was, there were, and then some of the contemporary ones, Clive and Barker, I really got suckered in and I had this habit of reading authors in sequential order. So I'd read from the first book that they wrote and then I'd read them chronologically to see how their style changed. And I mean, so I'd go on these Stephen King binges where I just read all these books and then, then the movies would come out and then amazing stories would come out and then, you know, all these things would kind of tie together and I'd be immersed in this world. And I just get totally freaked out. I mean, there, there are some things that I just cannot watch because of aspects of these films or TV shows that I've done. And I don't know if anybody else is like that, but clowns. Oh no. (laughs) Dolls. Oh no. (laughs) No, not happening. (laughs) I I have a few family members who are clowns. (laughs) Really? I went to my Mark's and I went to my dad's clown school graduation. That's Mark's just kept going. That this is, is like a nightmare. <laughs> That's the next harm movie, clown school. <laughs> oh, that'd be good. <clears throat> I got I got to play a psychologist in a in a movie. Well, it's actually the a ten minute version of a, a movie that this guy I met at the Big Bear Lake Horror Film Festival made. It's called Carnival, and. Um, I get to I got to play the shrink who tells the young lady that to get over her fear of clowns, which is called coolrophobia, um, she should go to a carny, which of course puts everything and she ends up uh, with a lot of dead people. But um, they they really are. I mean, they're just awful people. Those clowns. Oh no! I love clowns. <laughs> No, the clown union. Now, mimes are or... creepy. Mimes are a little creepy. I'll give you that. Mimes are clowns. No, they're different. No, they're not. Yes, they're very, very different. Two very no, different no, traditions. No, they're not. They're just clowns with berets. <laughs> and they, they don't, don't talk. Speak. Yeah. They, they still wear costumes and makeup and red noses sometimes. Yeah. It's true. So they're clowns. How can you take anyone seriously who's wearing like that outfit though? A mime. <laughs> not supposed to take them seriously. That's the point, right? Oh, okay. You <laughs> say they're a little creepy, but they're not that bad. So let's uh, let's take this concept of like the first movies we watched and and uh, horror and, and and those generations, and let's make it to a list. Okay, but you don't have to stick to with list. just a generation. No, no, no. You don't have to, it's whatever's Because if so, my list is crap. No, no. <laughs> okay. Because I think I asked each of you <laughs> to try to think of like your top five favorite horror movies. Oh, my yeah. top five of all time? Yeah, yeah. yeah. All right. I got to go on IMDb. Hang on. <laughs> <laughs> Monica had a little less warning than everybody else, I yes. think. So, so, so does... whoever wants to go first. Whoever's... Not me. <laughs> well all right you want me to take a shot at it sure sure <laughs> all right okay top five okay well the horror movies i really like are the ones that play with structure and by playing with structure i mean that they they sort of explode um the decorum of uh traditional hollywood filmmaking uh and i and i think i've got five i'll go through them and say but one of course is going to be psycho and uh, Hitchcock Psycho was so great uh, mm-hmm. because, of course, the Janet Lee trick, which is that you follow her along. She's your star. She's a famous actress, and she dies in the first third, uh, which is brilliant in and of itself. But the idea uh, that makes Psycho so brilliant is that what do you do with the structure? Where, where does the audience move its point of identification? It, it can't stay with her. So you're, you, the audience starts darting around, well, who am I going to follow now? 
And then that's when Hitchcock leads you into the trap because you're going to follow that nice, sweet boy who can't get away from his mother in the Hotel Norman. And boy, don't you hope he gets the money that Marion Crane stole? Um, and of course, Norman is, uh, you know, batshit crazy. He's the, he's the monster of the film. So Psycho was so brilliant because uh, it, it exploded expectations. It made you shift identification um, it, and, and, and made you feel vulnerable. And ideally, that's what a horror movie is going to do, a successful horror film. It's going to make you feel vulnerable or at risk while you're sitting there. And so Psycho did that. Um, another film that plays with structure like that, it goes even further than Psycho, but really hasn't been... Uh, a, a lot of people haven't really... Um, um, raised it up for doing that, which I think they should, is the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Toby Hooper's film. You know, you just have to kind of ignore the um, the grisly-sounding title. When you look at the film, what he does there is he totally explodes decorum. He says, you know, in, in most horror movies, you're going to learn. There's going to be this build of knowledge, build, 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 resolution, closure, da-da, it's over. There's no learning in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. These kids, one after the other, they walk into Leatherface's kitchen, uh, get slammed over the head with a you know a sledgehammer. They die without imparting any information to any of their friends. The yeah. film at the end, it, it has no sense of closure. Uh, it just ends with Leatherface twirling around with his chainsaw. He's he's not captured. He's not killed. Um, the, the police don't go get him. There's nothing like that. So that movie completely explodes structure. It completely, um, it completely destroys what, what we think of uh, in terms of conventional horror films. And so, again, we feel very vulnerable when we watch it because we, we don't feel safe because the safety of the three-act screenplay of, uh, of, of the arc of learning is gone. Another film that I think is very good from the same time that sort of plays with structure is um, Don Coscarelli's Phantasm, which came out in 1979. And that film, uh, it lives up to its title. You know, a phantasm is a dream or a fantasy. And so the whole movie you can contextualize as this this boy's fantasy. The film concerns this young boy whose parents have recently died, and he's very uncertain about his older brother, who seems to want to leave town. And suddenly he's drawn into this mystery, and it's almost like a Scooby-Doo mystery of, you know, what's going on at the local cemetery. And there's some evil tall man there and his, his evil dwarfs who are stealing bodies and shipping them to another dimension. I mean, it's, it's very strange. But the reason the movie is so beautiful and I think so poignant is that um, what this movie is really about is the idea that this boy would rather create a fantasy of a monster he can defeat, the tall man and his dwarfs, then face the reality of the monster he can't defeat, which is mortality, which has taken his um, mother and father, and which we learn in the final act, has actually also taken his brother. He's alone now, and rather than deal with that, he goes into this phantasm where he can he can kill the monster. And, and, you know, it's much easier to fight a vampire. You know how to fight a vampire or a werewolf, silver bullets or, or a crucifix, what have you, than, than, than actually facing mortality. And to me, that's the crux of a good horror movie is that it makes you face an issue like that. Um, then fourth, you know, a lot of people, again, they don't like it, but it, it just brilliantly said where we were as a culture. Um, the Blair Witch Project from 1999. It, it's a movie that uh, initiated for all intents and purposes, the found footage genre. But more than that, it was about the very filters uh, we put on 
uh, as a society so that we don't have to face the things that are unpleasant to us. We put up these barriers. And so the movie is about these three students who go out into the woods and they take their cameras with them. And as long as they have their cameras, as long as they're looking through the viewfinder, they are able to feel safe, you know, because they, they have that distance like they have at home when they're watching CNN on the news that the media creates this huge filter for us, and we can, we can experience vicariously all these tragedies and triumphs on the news. Um, but what these kids discover, of course, is that that filter isn't really there, and they're not really able to interpret what's happening. And the Blair Witch Project, of course, never showed the monster. And that in and of, in and of itself is brilliant, because the key to horror is not what you know and what you see, it's what you don't know and what you don't see. And so the Blair Witch Project gets that perfectly. And I think I'll stop with four. But I, 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 also, I, I also love uh, Friday the 13th. I think that's a really great and underrated film, Victor. So. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. And I can make an argument for that, too. Wait, all right, well, let me say this. <laughs> people, don't, people don't say enough good things about Friday the 13th because it's shot in a really clever way that if you go back and watch the original Friday the 13th, and you watch how many frames are boxes within boxes, and the inner box, like looking through a window, is lit, but then there are all these outer boxes which are not lit, which would be like the cabin, and then outside the cabin, the woods. And so, and so what that does is that it limits the space of the protagonist in the frame. And as the film gets deeper and deeper into this, uh, into the terror that's happening at Camp Crystal Lake, the 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 usable space in the frame is constricted. And, and I really like that approach. So I, I think it works really well with the story. So I, I can also just say really good things about Friday the 13th. So. Thank you. All right. Victor, you have uh, five? Movies? Yeah, I have, a, um, I have a strange one to start with, not uh, uh, Seven Keys to Ballpate, but uh, it got resurrected in my memory today because, um, oh, who was it? Um, uh, a horror film actor on Facebook was talking about and posted the uh, the old uh, poster for it, and that was the Tingler, um, which I absolutely loved. I was uh, I was an undergraduate at Yale at the time, and I went with some friends to see the Tingler. And the publicity for the Tingler was um, that uh, it would be loose in the theater, and they would have a, a, a practical nurse there in case anyone had a heart attack. Um, and it was it was a goofy movie where this guy took pieces of uh, I think it was uh, criminal's uh, spinal cords and it got loose in the theater in on the screen. The the producer had provided each theater with these uh, vibrators under some of the seats in the theater, and uh, so as it was going through the the theater in the on the screen, it was also uh, getting some of your neighbors <laughs> and goosing them with this blah and. Uh, Meanwhile, there was a, a probably a, um, a, a one of the theater employees wandering around in a white uniform, uh, and they even went so far as to take somebody that uh, was a plant. They took him out on a stretcher, and it was just this was this was the early '60s or the late '50s, early '60s when movies were just dying, and uh, you had these wonderful uh, filmmakers who were just absolutely crazy. And uh, they came in and, and they tried anything. And of course, it didn't defeat television. But it was just, it was the most fun and the most out, outre, I guess, uh, horror film ever made that, that I know of. And then, of course, Psycho and D Diabolique, the French one. Mm -hmm. I thought uh, Diabolique, I've, I've screened it several times since then. And it's, 
it's a masterful piece of tension with the promise of that scene uh, in the bathtub coming, um, which literally had me uh, bolt upright. And then uh, The Haunting, the one with Julie Harris and Halloween. Uh, and I think that'll, that'll do. Psycho, and that's five. Um, but there are lots more. I mean, um, I even liked Saw, um, and uh, who knows what's le left out there. <laughs> okay. Uh, are you ready, Monica? We can give you a little more time. We can talk about ours. I am. Um, I'm actually glad everybody went first. That way I wasn't um, basically so we wouldn't have any overlap. So I'm going to pick five completely different movies. Uh, <laughs> okay. Aliens ah. is a fantastic horror movie um, that scared me then. Turn out all the lights. It can still scare me now. Um, we there's still a lot of unknown things about aliens and the more science they reveal and the more worlds they say they are, I kind of have to wonder, you know, what would happen if we would run into some other alien species and what their motivation would be. And because it kind of ties into my natural state of, well, all aliens can't be gray and benevolent and, and happy, shiny people that want to come down and, and, you know, hold rainbow parties or anything like that. It it just ties into a lot of personal things for me, and I, I really like movies that play around cine, cinematography-wise with light and dark, and I think there's a really good use of shadow in that film. I would even uh, offer that I feel that that movie could also be black and white, and you would get the same sort of effect from it as the alien queen kind of hides in the shadows and whatnot. I, I think there's a lot of really good use of light there. Uh, I'm going to mention a few foreign ones because I think that uh, there are some really excellent horror movies out there that are foreign that can be viewed by an American audience and still be quite frightening. One of them is Let the Right One In. Yeah. Uh, this one was a movie that was remade for an American audience. I would very much uh, recommend the original. And part of the reason why this one was frightening is because the gender of the vampire was and who it was was unknown for most of the film and it talks a lot about contemporary issues that may be a little bit harder for parents to stomach because there's some bullying in it that happens to the one of the main protagonists and there's this kind of sense that well can you really hate a villain if that villain is trying to help somebody who's being hurt. I mean, there's a lot of these really questionable social things that come into play, but it's very much a horror film in the sense that, well, okay, <laughs> you're saved, then what? There's a lot of these really kind of neat uh, commentaries on that, and I really liked it. Um, another foreign film that I think is really worth exploring is Pan's Labyrinth. Oh, yeah. 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 I could not look at a watch for a week <laughs> after watching that movie. And I really liked it because it, it took a darker form of fairy tales and fairy tales for the most part used to be dark. I mean, the reason why they were told was, was two reasons, right? It was, it was to scare people into behaving. Uh -huh. uh, and, you know, even like the changeling myth was to scare parents into taking care of their children correctly. And there's all these sorts of weird cultural things with fairy tales, but I absolutely loved it because there was this sort of ancient sense of it meets the horrors of fascism. And being Italian and knowing, you know, some about Mussolini, it just kind of triggered all my, ah! <laughs> yeah. So I thought it was really well done. Uh, another foreign film that I think is uh, really worth watching is Juan, mm -hmm. which is uh, Americans would know as The Grudge. Mm -hmm. I, 
I really like that one. And uh, that ties back into ghosts. Um, you know, ghosts in the States, we think, like I said, that we can help them move on to a better place. Well, you know, I think one of the reasons why this is frightening is that sometimes there's things outside of our understanding that we can't help. There's nothing we can do to help them. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, for American movies, The Shining is still one of my favorite horror movies. I think there's a lot that I identify with as a writer who would love a cabin in the woods, but it would probably be a bad idea. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and I really like the use of the way they did some of the creepy kid stuff because I'm sort of a, of the belief that it can be overdone. And I... Well, and I guess if I had a sixth one, somebody said four, so I get a sixth one. Uh, you're gonna, totally going to laugh. Monkey Shines? Mm, okay. Uh, George Romero. That movie, <laughs> I still don't like those little chimpanzees with the little symbols in them. <laughs> it's, just, <laughs> it's just awful. And there's a, there's a place here called um, House on the Rock, which has a curio gallery, and there's all these sort of bizarre antiquities and whatnot. And they have one of those, like, in their in their doll collection. And I just looked at it, and I just totally freaked out. Like, I thought it was possessed and stuff. But, <laughs> but yeah. That's cool. For mine, I, I didn't really have any deep reason. I just picked ones that I liked, and I thought no one else would pick because <laughs> I didn't want to rehash them. <laughs> so um, I mentioned one already, The Watcher in the Woods. Mm-hmm. And I also love Nosferatu. The Max Shrek was in 1922. <clears throat> I know that's hokey, but it is so good. (laughs) (laughs) I liked the first Scream, and it's so funny because I think it's just mostly because it's sort of a snapshot in time, just in the the middle of the 90s, and it really, really tapped into, like, the cultural zeitgeist because it's so funny because, you know, before then people didn't really carry phones around with them all the time, and it would have been a really short movie if people stopped answering their phones. You know, it just wouldn't have been a film. I mean, they just would have kept ringing and gone to voicemail and no, oh, okay. I mean, that was that was it. That's all I had to do. But um, but just because of the the cast and the dialogue and the music and and the cultural things like the phones and and the computer. She's like trying to. Di- I remember seeing her trying to dial nine one one on her laptop in her room, and I remember think I even said I said, "Can you do that?" Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know you could do that. I didn't have a computer, you know? And um, so I just, I really, you know, it's long enough ago I can get nostalgic about that time period because 96 was a good year. That was kind of where horror was sort of, after all the slasher films, was starting to look back Circle at. Circle back around. Yeah. Um, I, first of all, I'm appalled that you use the word nostalgic. In um, and second of all, I just wanted to point out that you brought up a really excellent point about the use of technology. I think that you know, what you mentioned about the phones is a really good thing to bring up because I'm wondering if that's something that's hard for people to relate to because that's part of the world building. You know, many people, they look at, you know, Miami Vice from the 80s and they see this big honking (laughs) brick of a phone. I just thought that was really cool that you, and insightful that you pointed that out. Oh, thank you. And I think it does sort of, you know, younger generations trying to watch older ones, you know, they're, you know, they're thinking, why don't they just get a phone call 911? You know, because they can't. Um, I I read, I read a lot of screenplays by young writers, uh, two or three a week, 
And you'd be surprised how many times everybody says, well, I don't get any reception up here. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, we've driven cross it's country. far from reality. You really. can't really get reception in a lot of places. <laughs> um, and I had to do sort of like either a tie or one and then honorable mention because I had to mention the original Friday the 13th. Um, but then I had to do an honorable mention just because I love Nosferatu. And then Marks and I recently watched, it took us a long time, watched Shadow of the Vampire, which is about a horror film about the making of that. And I, I mean, it was funny. Totally true, I'm sure. I laughed my ass off that whole time. Um, but I just loved it so much. I had to throw that in as an honorable mention. If no one's seen it, go watch Shadow of the Vampire. Willem Dafoe plays, um, uh, oh yeah, I'm sorry, plays Max Schreck. I skipped my number four. I got yeah, sidetracked. Skip. I'm sorry. Number four <laughs> was a Troll Hunter from Norway. Mm, and mm-hmm. um, that does, it has the found footage, uh, thank you, Marks, as the found footage, uh, pl- you know, format that from Blair Witch Project. I couldn't, I did not enjoy Blair Witch Project because I got motion sick in the theater watching it. Me which, too. Yeah, which is just a horrible feeling. Um, but we watched Troll Hunter at home, <laughs> so that probably made a difference. And it was just really, really good. I liked it. So... Well, yeah. I think I think nowadays found footage you don't shoot it actually on a handy cam. And they yeah, just shake it, it was just too rough to get through, you know. <laughs> but but Troll Hunter, I was able to watch and it was good. I thought it was well written, well acted, well shot, and so and you know, yes, it's a Norwegian. It's got subtitles. I encourage anyone to always watch watch it with subtitles. When it's yeah. voice dubbed over, you're really losing the original uh, performance of the actor. I think so. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah. Good advice. So my t- top five. They're necessarily my top five of all. Many of the movies you guys have mentioned probably fit in the top five over these. But <laughs> We're trying wanted, to get ones that no one else Yeah, did. I want to pick something a little different than probably what everybody else did, which I did succeed in doing, so Yay. it's good. Um, so uh, first off, uh, Mouth of Madness, I think I already talked about. Uh-huh. Um, uh, I thought that was really good. That was my introduction to Lovecraft, Lovecraftian-type horror, and uh, there's a lot of allusions to different elements from Lovecraft stories, which is kind of cool. It got me more interested in that writer and the whole sort of subgenre. It's got a creepy ending, so... Yeah. <laughs> it, it is dated a little bit now. I rewatched it recently, and I'm like, uh, <laughs> might need some different me- soundtrack. And, you know, the synthesizer music always just makes it seem very timely. Because <laughs> John Carpenter did the music, I think. Or, so I'm not going to put these in any particular order. But uh, another one... An example, usually like video game movies are bad idea, usually, I think. But I thought this one was was pretty good. I, I don't know anything about the video game, so I can't relate to that. But I thought the visuals were very interesting for the movie Silent Hill, the first one. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. yeah. I thought it was a very creepy story. It had a really good um, <coughs> kind of visual uh, look to it and, and an interesting story. And the endings both kind of... Ha- kind of good and or kind of happy and sad at the same time in a way so, <laughs> so you don't know how how to feel at the end at least for me and then another movie i really enjoyed um which i i loved the story was based off of was the mist for yeah. some reason especially after reading the stephen king story was based off of the idea of something lurking in the mist or fog it was always kind of creepy and i really liked the interplay of all these people stuck in this grocery in a, in a post-an apocalyptic type scenario, where they don't know anything about what's going on, and they're all trying to deal with this horrific situation. 
you know, from their own viewpoints and experience. So you get some people fall into religion, some people start getting violent, some people just get scared, would kill themselves. I thought that was a really cool story. And, and um, the movie itself, the ending's very, you know, controversial probably and definitely. It was rough. Yeah, it's very rough ending. One of the roughest endings I've ever seen in a movie. You're, you're talking about the cube? The, the, mist, the mist. The mist. Oh, sorry. the mist. Sorry. Yes, the cube is actually a pretty decent movie too. So, but yeah, uh, not Hypercube, but the original one. Oh gosh, no. <laughs> Hyper Hypercube was what? <laughs> cube was wow. <laughs> That's a cult classic. And of course, the creatures were kind of cool. Thomas Jane did a good job. Lots of Walking Dead. People who go into the Walking Dead were in that movie. It's kind of a precursor, in many ways, to Walking Dead TV show in a way. And then another one talking about found footage like Julie mentioned and and John. I found it interesting how found footage has, has kind of evolved over time. And there's a movie I really enjoy. I don't know if it's called REC or REC or record or how you should actually say it when you it's speak. It's spelled R E C. R E C Yeah. Yeah. Right. R E C Yes. REC. Yes. R E C REC. If you're not familiar with it, it's a you know Spanish film in Spanish. And uh it's it deals what could be very cliche, could fall into just a zombie type movie, but totally goes in a different direction. Especially the second one, which is probably my favorite, where they take it to a whole other level where there's multiple cameras and you know multiple or two different parts of the story that kind of collide together. So I thought it was very cleverly written and, and, and well done. And then last is the British film The Descent, mm. which I really good choice. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. I thought uh, it was a very claustrophobic feel of how it's shot. I thought it was it was nice to see uh, different to have a whole cast of female characters. Yay! And uh, and seeing how they deal again in a very dangerous, crazy situ- situation, and I see how they deal with the horrific scenario. And and again, it's not a very happy ending in a way. It's all kind of Lovecrafty and depressing ones actually. <laughs> Oh, dog soldiers. You said English and British and that popped into my head. No one said dog soldiers. That was a good one. No one said dog soldiers. That's one of my favorite werewolf movies, that's for Mm -hmm. sure. All right. So we got, so anybody who listens to this has like 20 different movies they should watch. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So let's talk about, no more fives because there's no time for that. Yeah. But uh, is there one particular movie that stood out to you as one of your least favorites because of just like, why did they do it this way? Why did they make this? You know what? what why? <laughs> uh, do any of you have any have one that kind of stands out in your mind? I I have to use the one that they always give you in uh, film history classes, the Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. But I think I think that's because it's so much older than I was. Um, it just it, it I never knew why anybody was ever afraid of it, and uh, and and yet you're forced to watch it. Um, and for good reason that you ought to see all the things that uh, that are your your precursors. But the ca- cabinet of Dr. College Car- Caligari just never did it for me, um, <laughs> and that's that's an unfair stabbing. Uh, German expressionism. That's your yeah. right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anybody else? I would say that I have a type of film that I tend to be more critical about in horror than any others and and that's usually remakes yes. because oh please yes um, <laughs> <laughs> because, alleged you know, remakes 
because for me, I mean, there's so many great performances, and just because they were made in the past, I mean, Vincent Price, one of my favorite actors, um, there's so many great performances in the past, and just because it was shot with different technology 40, 50 years ago doesn't necessarily mean that everything needs to be CGI and blue screen now. I mean, there's so many different techniques that, that filmmakers can use and screenwriters can write into their scripts that, you know, I like the beauty of the art form as opposed to, hey, let's just slap a CGI on it. And because that's always what breaks my suspension of disbelief. Um, you know, science was great until I saw the alien. Yeah. When I saw the alien, I was done. Like, I was like, really? Yeah. <laughs> you know, because it it wasn't the unknown anymore. Cloverfield was the same way. Yeah, well, just... and, and signs, the scariest scene for me was the scene where they're in the basement and the flashlight's on the floor and you're hearing everything and you're seeing their feet going in and out of the light. Scared the crap out of me. That was the scariest scene. It was a flashlight on the floor for crying out loud for I don't know how many minutes, but it felt like forever. And I was jumping that was the out of my seat. Cheapest scene they ever did. I know. But you're right. That that's that's when it's the scariest. Right, and then um, there was one remake that I was very unhappy with. Uh, it was a Wicker Man remake. Oh, Wicker Man. Oh yes. Oh, yeah, that was a bad one. <laughs> that was epic. <laughs> <laughs> Can we universally all just agree that the, the so-called remake on Friday the 13th was horrendous? I, I can yeah. even add to that because uh, I should have been paid a remake fee. Um, but, <laughs> oh. but oddly enough, contractually, I called, you know, because I called the union, I... I have not seen any of the sequels, but um, they sent me a copy of the screenplay for the se- for the remake, and uh, I read it, and uh, I said, well, it's clearly not a remake. It's uh, They use, I don't know what, eight minutes or something of the earlier story, and then they go merrily on with Jason running around underground, yeah. and um, it's not a remake at all. And he said, well, oddly enough, the contract they signed with the Guild is that it was a sequel, but and I said, but the publicity all says remake, and he said they can call it uh, the Franklin Mint if they want uh, for publicity. Uh, but uh, it with us, it's it's simply a sequel, and so it was a real ripoff. Yeah. Mm. Well, and and you know, Jared Padalecki was in it. I like that actor. He's in one of my favorite shows, Supernatural. But bless his heart, that was a terrible film. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think uh, for remakes. Anyone who's ever made a movie knows that it takes a lot of different people to make it, a lot of different things to go right, different pieces to go right together to make a classic film. Yeah. And I don't think it's very easy to recapture that magic. No, and a film is a a moment in time that is preserved, like a photograph. Why would you recreate a photograph? Why would you remake a film? It's like the... Money. Yeah. Yeah. You know, on on the other hand, you you know, you, you really have to take each remake on its own basis, because if if we just like made a blanket statement about remakes, we wouldn't have the 1978 invasion of the body snatchers. We would not have John yeah. Carpenter's The Thing. Right. Um, you know, the thing is, is that you know, in theater, everything is a remake. Yeah. How many right. times have we done Hamlet? Okay, how many versions of Dracula from the literary adaptation have we had? Re- remakes are part of the dramatic tradition, so you can't just blanket dismiss them. Um, and if the remaker is intelligent, they determine what works in this story that was told originally and then adapts it to the context of today. For instance, 
you know, the original invasion of the body snatchers in the 50s was very much about McCarthyism and communism and stuff like that. A- any ism you want to talk about, sort of conformity to some ism. Some people see it as communism, some people see it as McCarthyism. But the 70s version was instead about the me generation, the idea of um, people coming in and out of relationships too fast and all these self-help books of the 70s. And so the idea was everybody is so focused on themselves that they can't tell if the other person is a pot or not. So it was a very clever reinterpretation of the idea of invasion of the body snatchers. So, you know, I, I hear what you're saying about remakes, and there have been more than a handful of bad ones for sure. But, you know, there are also some really great ones, and that's why I say take them on a case-by-case basis because it, it, it's, it remakes, I mean, that anytime you go to the theater, you're probably seeing a remake. Anytime, I mean, you know, you know anytime you're seeing a stage production, you're probably seeing a remake, right? You're seeing, <laughs> right? You're, you're, you're well, seeing Hamlet, Shakespeare, right? 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 Thing, right? It's a remake. It's a remake. It's somebody it's, putting their stamp on it, so. Right. I, I think this is true of any creative medium, right? Because it certainly happens in literature. We're all influenced by the things we read and see. Uh, the, I think Victor honed in on the point for me. It, it's not so much the remake itself. It's not the film itself. It's the time that it's released and the way that it is presented that sets my expectations as a viewer. Totally, Very disregarding, well the, totally disregarding the creator side of me. But um, like we, who was saying, you know, there, there's films that come out and they're uh, World War Z, for example. I have not read the book, mm-hmm. um, but other people have. And they said, if you have read the book and you go into it and you think of this as, a, as faith, being faithful to the World War Z book, this is not an accurate translation of what the book is. And they came away from it disappointed. Now, me, on the other hand, I went into it and I didn't have that expectation. and I didn't think it was based on the book, so the marketing didn't really affect me. And I just thought it was another zombie movie and I happened to like it. So I think the way, the timing of when it's released and what your expectations are and hype, oh, hype is really hard because when when I get really excited about a film and I go in and I'm super expecting it to be the greatest thing ever and everybody says how wonderful it is, nine times out of ten my expectations fall flat because there's some message that's being presented to me as a viewer to get me to see the film. And then once I'm in the door, the film has to over deliver because I've already had that excitement when I walked in the door. (laughs) So I feel a lot of it has to do with the way these things are are marketed and presented. Uh, You know, a sequel means something very different to me than a remake or even A a reimagining because, you know, there's plenty of, there's plenty of movies out there, especially within horror. I mean, how many times has Dracula been done? How many times has Frankenstein been done? And if I, if I look at it as a reimagining or as using a different technique, um, there's uh, there's certainly a couple of Frankenstein plays, which take a very different sort of modern art approach to it where they have no set design and it's just two characters talking and they play all of the roles and whatnot. If I think about it as, playing around with form or structure or, or just understanding what it is, then I honestly get more into the movie and I analyze it more when I'm out of it because I understand what it is going in. Yeah, so, yeah you, you said it. That's, that's it. I, I think well, you just I think nailed it. Regardless of genre, anytime I've read the book first and gone seeing the movie, I've always been disappointed. <laughs> well, it's tough. It's really tough. It is. Well, and you can't do a, 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 whole novel in a movie right 
it's it's important to remember that film and books, you know, the written word, they're vastly different. Um, mediums, yeah. Mediums, you know, and, and you're not going to be able to make a one-to-one comparison. Uh-uh. I mean, if you look at uh, if you look at a film like if you look at Vonnegut's like Slaughterhouse Five, that book, it was all about somebody being unstuck in time and jumping back and forth in time. In the written word, that was quite amazing. But film as a medium can cut anywhere it wants, whenever you want. Every film is about being unstuck in time because you can cut, 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 go anywhere, anytime you want. Flashback, flash forward, go to this character, go to that character. So the movie of Slaughterhouse Five, although it was well received, wasn't nearly the same experience as the book because the medium had changed. And what was so amazing about the book couldn't be amazing on film because it's a, a matter of course in film. So, you know, you have you have to think, I mean, you know, the author of Deliverance thought the movie of Deliverance was horrible, but today what do people remember? The movie of Deliverance. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, you know, they're just vastly different art forms. So you, you can't make a one-to-one comparison. And, and it's not really a very good comparison for horror either because I think, as, as someone just said, you go, to, you go through any genre uh, of filmmaking and you compare a book to a film and there's going to be someone who doesn't like it. They, you know, the, the, well, the movie of Dune wasn't the equal perhaps of the book of Dune, maybe, or you could do it in science fiction. My point is you could do it in, in anything really. So well, and you know, I mean, I, I, reimaginings, uh, you know, you can't do a blanket statement. Of course, I, I love the new reimagined Battlestar Galactica way better than the original. So in the Brown version. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I think we're, we're kind of bleeding together a couple of different things. We're talking about adaptations and we're talking about remakes or reimaginings off the top of my head about adaptations but personally i think if you're going to do a remake of a movie it needs to reflect a whole nother point of view or take a different twist to it otherwise what's the point otherwise what's the point the friday 13th remake didn't introduce anything interesting or like they didn't they do a remake of psycho but they did it like frame for frame exactly the same it's like then why just watch the original it was in color it's in hd that's why it's hd color (laughs) Uh, <laughs> right. There's, right. There, there has. I, I mean, I think what everybody is getting at, and everyone said it in very clever ways, but is that there has to be an artistic basis for the remake. It, it can't just be I want to rip off something that was successful. It has to be like you. You have to pick a lens through which you're going to view that material, and that's your artistic basis, and then present it. Sort of, you know, what I described about Invasion of the Body Snatchers, or. Or you know, you look at John Carpenter's The Thing and the and the artistic basis for that, going back to the Campbell story from the 30s instead of the Hawk story from the 50s. You know, there is there you know there are artistic there are artistic bases for films, and you know I I can't see what the artistic basis was for the remake of Friday the 13th. Except, I mean, I think what it did, but I don't think it did it well. Was it tried to encapsulate maybe the first four or five movies into one story, but it did it in such a half-assed way. It was terrible, but it didn't, it didn't, it didn't really have any artistic point of view. There there was no new lens through which we could view the story. Uh, Unlike say the, with the the Frankenstein plays that were being discussed, where you, you take a different lens and you hold that lens up to a story, you know, and suddenly it looks different. And then you analyze and say, Oh my gosh, I never saw the Frankenstein story that way before. There was, there was nothing in that Friday the 13th remake for us to go, Oh my gosh, you know, I never interpreted, the story of, of Jason or Mrs. Voorhees. I never saw that that's what it was. And, and you know, and I know people complain about Rob Zombie and his Halloween remakes, but in fact, he had an artistic basis for those films. You may, have dis- you may disagree with them or may not like the artistic basis. I don't particularly like how he did the Halloween film, but he had an artistic basis, which was instead of Michael Myers being the shape of evil and the boogeyman, he, he's an abused child who is now 
you know, abusing society, essentially. I mean, it is an artistic basis. You may disagree with it, but you can't say it's not there. The Friday the 13th remake had nothing like that. It, it had nothing like that to hold on to. So I, I think when you're talking about remakes, you have to say, what, what is the lens through which the creator uh, is looking at this material and how is he or she presenting that to us? Yeah. I have the, I have I the could... strangest remake ever, and that's uh, Funny Games, where the filmmaker remade his own film. And I could not watch 15 minutes of either one because I was scared to death. Oh. I've had a, a Freudian breakthrough here. I realized that um, we've been talking for, what, an hour and a half or something. And um, Funny Games is the scariest movie I've ever had to stop watching. What's it about? <laughs> it's about two guys who terrorize an upper middle class family. And it is just so real and awful. Um, I mean, if you really want to see what your level of tolerance is, um, and it's not, um, you know, it's not an X-rated, I mean, yeah, it's X-rated, obviously, but um, it's not, they don't just pour bu uh, buckets of blood all over the place, but they do right. things in that movie that just, I, I said after 15 minutes, I can't do it. My older son um, loves it. He says <laughs> it's, it's a, one of the best horror films ever made. <laughs> Well, I think you all have touched on, I think you all have mentioned a lot of horror films that have, um, you know, the, the, the antagonist, the, the bad guy in it is, is more real. I, I tend to go towards more of the supernatural element. To me, uh, a bad guy who's a person yet is just sadistic and cruel and violent and terrifying is the most terrifying. I mean, I, I just, I can't, I wouldn't have made it 15 minutes. <laughs> that would probably, and I mean... To me, I think of what pops into my head is uh, that encapsulates for me the scariest villain. I don't know if anyone's seen Red State. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, okay. The the preacher, yeah, the preacher Smith. in that. Yeah. I yeah. I mean, my skin was crawling. I had goosebumps. <laughs> I was ter. This guy was so terrifying because he was so calm, and he found his his position so reasonable. And he had it all reasoned out, and he was just, and he's just a guy, but he was horrible. And it was just really right. scary to think that, you know, there are people like this. You know, I, I would right. take a, I'll take a supernatural creature over that any day. Well, maybe right. not Cthulhu. Uh, maybe not Cthulhu. <laughs> um, Victor, I wanted to ask you about uh, how licensing affects uh, some of what you do in terms of remake. Is that, is that kind of a decision that, forces filmmakers to look at their scripts in a new way? I, I think it is. Um, I have, I'm, was never a producer or whatever, and so I was never involved in any of the discussions of that. But um, I know that when we set out to do Friday the 13th, there was no thought of a sequel, and there was no, certainly no thought we were trying to survive uh, you know, economically. And uh, so I'm, I'm absolutely sure of it because I'm starting to market a film that I wrote with these two other guys that, uh, from Big Bear Lake Horror Film Festival. And um, I, I looked at the marketing whatever plan that some professional guy did. And my God, they, they take everything in because if you're looking for money, you have to um, sort of turn on every spigot that's humanly possible and get, uh, get the backers to see possibilities where who knows yeah i'm i'm quite certain that somebody maybe not the writer but certainly the producer is sitting around saying uh you know is there a doll in this or a coffee mug or a, i don't know a, a remote controlled toy yeah we also asked the listeners 
didn't give much much warning, but told them we're doing this Halloween special and asked them what some of their favorite movie, horror movie to watch kind of at Halloween was horror movie during Halloween was because everybody's so different. Uh, yeah. Some of theirs ended up being like the original Fright Night, uh, Exorcist, Monster Squad, which is kind of a funny one, <laughs> <laughs> and and Haunted Hill. So those are a few of theirs. Mm. I'm very unimaginative. I'm like Halloween. <laughs> Halloween for Halloween. Halloween. Okay, well, before we wrap this up, real quick, like let's touch on just your favorite horror book or short story, and your favorite. Well, let's start there, and then we'll, we'll go into TV series real quick. So, what's what's your favorite horror book? I start or short with story? Monica here. Yeah, Monica's the Please. author. Um, I'd like to give a nod to Clive Barker's Magica. Oh, okay. So, this was a book that really blew my mind in context. To put it in context, up until that point, I had never thought about horror in the context of beauty. Um, everything had been, you know, like there's there's people being bricked up in the walls, there's this creepy clown in the sewers, there's these foul deeds or creepy collies coming from the ocean. But uh, Magica really freaks me out because he was the first writer that took the horror genre and added these really imaginative, beautiful uh, aspects to it and challenged what I thought about horror because there were times when I was like, wow, that that just sounds like amazing and really pretty to look at. But wait, <laughs> it's like made of skin and bones and blood. I'm not really sure that I'm supposed to be <laughs> feeling that way. So uh, I, I just want to give a shout out for, for that because I, I feel that that really changed a lot of the way that I looked at the genre. Mm-hmm. Great. What about you, John? Yeah, um, as, as far as stories, um, I, I think the story that has really stuck with me and most disturbed me is a um, a Stephen King story that I don't think most people think of when they think of Stephen King, but it just horrifies me. It was, it was, it was a short story, I guess from maybe 1981, I think it was in Skeleton Crew, and it's called The Jaunt. And it was set in the future, and it was about this family that was going to travel uh, via some sort of transportation, like to another planet, some sort of teleportation device. But it required them to like go to sleep for like a hundred years or so. It, 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 I don't remember the exact setup, but the setup was that they had to go to sleep, and there was there was a little there there was a little boy with the uh, the family, and 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 he didn't he didn't go to sleep. Mm-hmm. And so what happened um, to him in the story was just very frightening and upsetting to me, I guess, I guess because of, of what it represented. I don't, know if I, I don't know if I identified with it um, because I saw myself as the curious boy, or I don't know if I identified, it at, identified with it you know, now as I would as the father of the child, but mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a very um, disturbing uh, story. Um, as far as TV shows, um, my, my favorite is the um, the X Files. I I just think that uh, you know that that show was so brilliant because Chris Carter um, reinvented um, and reimagined uh, all all of the old sort of horror monsters, but for the new um, modern age, uh, you know, of the '90s and early 2000s. So yeah. that, that would be my choice there. So it's a oh, classic. I love the X Files. Well, since, yeah. since you you got into television, uh, Monica, what's your favorite? Uh, horror-ish TV series of some type. Darker TV, TV. 
TV series? Mm, TV series. Um, so I really liked Buffy back in the day, but I, I don't know if I would consider that to be horror. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, Hush um, was pretty good. Yeah. It's a good story. Yeah, I mean, there were certainly episodes of Buffy, which I think were were just really fascinating. Like, uh, like I, I just recently did a rewatch, and at the end of the first season, where Buffy is this teenage girl, and she, she basically goes to fight the master, even though she knows she's going to die. I mean, I think that there were some episodes that were definitely more horror than others. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, some of those moments were, were very powerful uh, in terms of characterization, but... Um, you know, in terms in terms of things being really scary, I, I have to go back to uh, a short-lived series called Amazing Stories. Oh yeah, that really pushed a lot of the envelope outside of the Twilight Zone context because um, it kind of predates the whole Whedon era with the twist endings and all of that whatnot. Because that's pretty much what that series was about. It was you know, taking these very ordinary things and looking at them in a very unusual, faceted way. Mm-hmm. And there were some really good episodes there. Um, sometimes, you know, something would come in at the last possible moment and save everything. But there were other times. I mean, there were deals with devils made and, uh, you know, going through alchemist workshops and whatnot that I think were really great. Um, having said that, I really would like to see a Lovecraftian TV series someday, like a whole Cthulhu thing. I think it'd be great. That would be. Uh, Victor, do you have a favorite horror book or short story? Or um, it would be any of the Poe, the uh, cast of Montiano, and uh, oh Lord, what what is the other one I'm thinking of? Um, well, just and and the pit and the pendulum, the pit and the pendulum, Telltale Heart. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, that's just that has all the, the stuff, and yet the, when you first asked the question, I said the Grapes of Wrath. Um, I told you, I told you, real people scare me much more than uh, uh, things dangling from the ceiling. And, uh, and so it, it's really, and then as far as television, it would be uh, probably uh, many, many different episodes of uh, Twilight Zone because that was when I was in college, and uh, it was that was some really incredible stuff. The scariest experience in television was uh, working on General Hospital. <laughs> they had some supernatural stuff on there at some point, didn't they? Right. Well, the stuff, the supernatural stuff was off screen. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's behind the scenes horror oh, that he yes. was dealing with. There you with. go. Yep. We all have workplace horror stories. What about you, Julie? Yes. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I, every time I try to think of a horror book or short. Uh, Short, short story. story, I keep thinking. I keep going along the lines of science fiction more than horror, but um, there is one that I, I don't know, it's not really horror, but it, it really affected me, and it, it's sort of horrifying what happens. Um, it was uh, All Summer in a Day, and I remember it was really, because like they live, I can't remember which planet it is, it's been so long, and summer only happens in one day, and this little girl is the outcast of her school. And so it's written by Ray Bradbury. And, you know, they, earlier in the day, they're being mean to her and they're bullying her and they lock her in the closet and then they forget about her and they go outside and they get to enjoy the sun. It's going to be the only time it's happened in their entire lives. And they've never seen the sun. And uh, then they come back in and then all of a sudden someone goes, oh, Margot. And they go to open the door to the closet where they've locked her in all day and that's how it ends. And it's just so horrible. <laughs> <laughs> 
So that, I mean, to me, that's just the most horrifying thing that I can imagine. And I read it at a time when I was really dealing with a lot of bullying in school, so it just really affected me. Um, and TV shows, all of them that you've, every single TV show you guys have mentioned, plus, uh, again, it's sci-fi, but it had some kind of horror elements uh, in, um, uh, oh, Outer Limits. And mm -hmm. then uh, there's a lot of really good ones the recently. The Earth gets destroyed many times. Yes, it gets destroyed so many times. <laughs> you can do make a drinking game out of it. And then, but there are some on now that are really good. I've I've been a fan of Supernatural since the beginning, um, and that's really good. I remember it came on the first episode, and it said, "For maximum viewing pleasure, turn out your lights." And I said, "Way ahead of you." Marks and I are on the couch with not a light on in the house, and we're under a blanket, and we're ready to watch it. And um, a Sleepy Hollow is really good. Mm -hmm. It's on now, and I like it. That's a good new one for sure. Yeah, so there's some on now that are, are really good. Watch <clears throat> them, everybody. Keep them on the air. <laughs> I, I haven't put a lot of thought in, in these two, actually, unfortunately. But, uh, I mean, one short story I think I already mentioned that left an impact with me when I was a kid was The Mist. Yeah. I you think, read some troubling uh, things as a child. Yeah, well, I watched a lot more <laughs> troubling things. <laughs> but... Uh, that was one of my favorite stories back then from Stephen King. I mean, I read a lot of Stephen King and, and Dean Arkuntz. And oh, yeah. So. R.L. Stein and Dean Arkuntz as a kid. Mm -hmm. You felt like you were getting away with something. <laughs> and then for TV series, I think we've already mentioned a lot of them. You know, X-Files is a classic. Uh, Twilight Zone, for anthology, Twilight Zone and Outer Limits are, are great. Supernatural's a lot of fun, and, and they have their dark episodes too. And so did Buffy with, with Hush. Even Doctor Who had like Blink. Oh example. my gosh, that was oh, scary. Yeah. That was so scary. Great episode. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think the only TV shows we haven't mentioned that I do watch, I don't know if they're necessarily better than these other ones, but uh, you know, The Walking Dead, of course, is super popular right now. Zombies. I can't get into that. That's another survival type movie and people clashing and then American Horror Story is another big popular one right now that I do watch I think they did a clever thing there for horror because horror is a tough genre for television I mean you're supposed yeah. to be scared people are going to die and stuff and you can't do that for re recurring characters <laughs> yeah and it's tough so they did you know and you got anthology which can pull that off and then you got and they did a kind of nice medium extended anthology sort of yeah sort of because every season is a different different story and, and changes every season and I, and I like the idea of reusing actors but in different roles yeah it's like a really long movie yeah and each season's very very different from each other so I think that's been a, a clever show an example of a horror TV series that did not work because of that reason I think was The River is that what it's called oh yeah I don't know I think it had some more life in it I liked it <clears throat> it did but by the end of it almost no one died and I think that really killed the suspense yeah tension so but anyway, I think we cover like every horror television series. <laughs> I know if it's on network, most likely I can watch it and not have to like close my eyes or leave the room. <laughs> yes. Yeah, Walking Dead and American Horror Story are very gory. I, yeah. I told there's you guys I'm a lot of. If anybody's interested, there's also a very large collection of horror um, manga on Netflix that's legal and free to watch. Oh. Um, Blood Plus is on Netflix, which is basically the idea of a, a vampire schoolgirl. But one of the ones that's really good, uh, Death Note is another one. Uh -huh. um, I'm not sure if that's still on there or not, but it, it's nice because it's legal. So you know that the licensing, the actors get paid for that. Yeah. Um, I, I have some friends that are actors and, and they're, 
you know, so the the anime and finding ways to support them is one of the things that I look for. So just a just a sidebar. It's a good <laughs> shout out. Thank you. I'm dabbling. <laughs> it happens. <laughs> Well, uh, we've been talking for like an hour and a half, so I guess it's about time to start wrapping up. I think I've gained like an IQ point or two in Har after participating. I've lowered everyone's two points. My bad. Sorry. Uh, We knew this would happen. Um, You may not have been warned. However, uh, our apologies. Before we go, let's have each of you tell our listeners where they can find you online. Let's start off with Victor. I'm at uh, victormiller.com, and standard spelling of Victor and Miller. Great. And John? I have a daily blog uh, devoted to horror, science fiction, uh, cult television, that kind of thing, at um, John Kenneth Muir's Reflections on Cult Movies and Classic TV, the worst URL ever. But it's existed for so long that uh, I keep it. Um, you can also find me on Facebook so or Twitter at uh, J.K. Muir. Okay, and can you spell your last name, please? Oh, sure. It's M as in Michael, U-I-R, like the ghost and Mrs. Muir. <laughs> or the Muir Woods. <laughs> and like there was Muir a naturalist Woods, right. with your name, wasn't there? I remember. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I, in, I indeed, there was. Muir Woods is beautiful. Great. Yeah. The, yes, the, the great John Muir. I, I like to claim I'm related, but I don't actually think I am. I, but I, I actually... I, I could be. Well, I was, I, I was, I was seeing something on PBS because I remember telling Marks when he mentioned you. I said that name sounds awfully familiar. And then, like, just this last year or so, I was on PBS and they were like John Muir. I go, that's where it sounded familiar. And it just <laughs> dawned on me. And I told him, I said, Oh, I wonder if he's related. <laughs> I wish. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Monica. Um, before I before I respond, I just wanted to ask the great John Mueller. How long his blog has been running? It has been running since 2005. So I, in 2015, was that two years? I will be at the 10-year mark. Wow. And wow. I've, I've done, I think I've done over 1,000 posts this year. In, in total, I've done close to 5,000 posts uh, on the blog. So it's, uh, you know, if, if I knew then what I know now, I'd have a snappier name or something. But it seems like people find it, so... Uh, can't complain. Right? <laughs> yeah, congratulations. I hope we can see a book from you on it someday. Oh, well, thank you. That's very nice. Uh, a book about the blog? Yeah, Did absolutely. Their oh. criticism is awesome, right? So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> that's, that's something I'm sure everybody listening to this call would agree on. Um <laughs> I can be found at mlvwrites.com. I'd like to give a shout out to um, my editor on, a, on an anthology that's coming out. It's uh, it's an anthology that's Lovecraftian, and it's inspired by uh, the Orient Express. So all of the stories kind of tie back into the train, and it was part of a really, really hugely successful Kickstarter for Chaosium Publishing. And the anthology will include a story by me, um, my title is currently The Women Who Call Down the Train, and it's around the Simplon Tunnel in Italy. There was a, quite a bit of research that went into that one, and I'm sure I went way over word count, but uh, <laughs> when it gets edited, then I'll pull all that stuff out and put it on my blog, because I think the time period in the 20s is super fascinating, oh, especially yeah. post-World War One. Really, really interesting just how the technology was and 
you know, some people don't realize just how much the the war influenced technology and whatnot. And I could just totally go on and on and on about it. I am rapidly becoming a big fan of history. Um, and you can find out more about that on my website at mlvrights.com. Thank you. All right, all right. Great. All right. Well, thank you so much to all three of you for agreeing to do this. Yes, this is so fun. Thank you, guys. I hope you <clears throat> don't regret it. <laughs> <laughs> we got to talk movies and babble and, and <laughs> you know, and uh, speculate and conjure wonderful ideas of film for an hour and a half. This is really easy. <laughs> <laughs> and I, got I got an idea for a whole new movie based on what you were talking about at the beginning before we started. Oh, um, really? Um, uh, yes, it's a uh, it's a movie that's gonna be called Shut Your Mouth, uh, <laughs> and it's and it's a movie where people who make unasked for comments in public get punished. <laughs> <laughs> like, are you gaining are you gaining weight or when's the baby? Yeah, there you go. Can I please ask that I make a cameo and get killed off horribly at the beginning? <laughs> I thought you were going to be the victim of these people. Well, I, I, I am, but I figured you'd get someone younger and prettier to play me. <laughs> Just, I'm not turning the video on. I don't... <laughs> well, and, to be, and to be clear, my comment really wasn't that, that dark. I mean... Oh, no, we made a comment. Uh, oh, it may have been before you were on. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, I was I was checking because I was like, wow, that's pretty dark even for me. <laughs> no, I was telling them about, um, we were picking like horror person names and I said, I have to be Elvira, you know, because I, I have black hair and white skin and I was called Elvira off and on in school if I would wear black. And, um, and that I have had just random strangers, not so much in recent years, because in recent years, people are mm. kind of savvy about sun. Um, but strangers would come up to me and go, wow, you need to get a tan. You're too pale. And I'm just kind of like, I can't. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm not sure Monica was on that call yet. No. And I just, you know, mm. we were just amazed that some people just feel so um, entitled to just sort of give unsolicited criticisms uh. to strangers. <laughs> See, and now I want to come up with a list of punishments because I just think that would be the fun part. <laughs> that would be. We'll, I've, we'll I've, write a horror movie on Skype. Yeah. There we go. <laughs> I've, I, and I've also had people um, say things to me like, oh, well, you put on a lot of weight. Or uh, someone looked at, I showed a wedding, a photo from the time Mark Sarah married, and she goes, oh, so the weight gain was recent then. <laughs> I'm really not that big a gal, I gotta tell you. <laughs> I was just really young when we got married. I think this movie could work. It could. It's <laughs> 24. I think anytime anybody says that to you, they gain whatever the thing is that you're criticizing them about. Yes. So, so they say that you've gained, oh, you look like you've gained 20 pounds. Uh, well, then they gain 20 pounds. Oh, so <laughs> like, they'll gain weight, they'll have a big nose, and but really But this is a horror skin. movie, so it's going to be like gain 200 pounds. Oh, yeah. <laughs> or just like well, a big yeah. tumor that's like 200 pounds. <laughs> Well, I'm sorry, you're looking kind of sick. Uh, you have anthrax. <laughs> <laughs> On that note. <laughs> I like you guys. You guys are fun. Yeah. <laughs> All right, well, thank you, everyone, and uh, thank you. you guys have a great night. Yes, have a good night. Thank Don't you. Before everybody. then, everyone have a very happy yes. and sweet Halloween. Oh, yes, Halloween. happy Halloween, everyone. <laughs> you too, everybody. Everybody Bye. take care. Take care. Bye. Bye.
This is Mike Davis with Lovecraft Easing, and you're listening to Genretainment. Well, thanks to Victor, John, and Monica for chatting with us. We had a great time, and we hope they did too. And if you liked the music that started and ended the conversation, then check out Blood Tribe on Facebook or Reverb Nation. Thanks again to them for giving us an early listen at what they're working on. And we always like to give indie filmmakers and creators out there mm-hmm. shout-outs. So, before we go, we want to give a shout-out to Tim Heerdink, who's a big supporter of the show. And he has a new episode of his Paranormal Investigating web series that's premiering on Halloween. The series is called Beyond the Dark Paranormal Encounters. And we appreciate all of you out there who listen and support us. Mm-hmm. So that's it for today's Genretainment. We'll be back soon with all new guests from our favorite films, TV shows, novels, and web series. And you can keep up with our show on iTunes, Facebook, or at the websites Genretainment.com and SciFiPulseRadio.com. And don't forget, you can also check out the other great shows on the SciFi Pulse Radio channel like SFP Now, The Roundtable, and more. Until Until next time. time.